evidence and answers. Euthanasia is a hot topic, especially in Hawaii right now, as the House will be voting on a bill to make this physician-assisted suicide legal. Where does euthanasia or suicide stand in light of God's word? Is this an ethical issue, a moral issue, and where do we draw the line? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the arena of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today in our broadcast, Pat and special guest, Dr. Craig Nakatsuka, discuss the debate of euthanasia and its ramifications to our society. If you're unable to hear this entire broadcast, all of our messages are available on our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Here's our host, Pat Zukren, along with Dr. Craig Nakatsuka, with part two of Understanding the Euthanasia Debate. You would think that the individual going to a doctor to request for these lethal prescriptions would have an evaluation that would be of some concern to the doctor that if that prevalence rate is that high, about 50%, that you'd have a referral to a psychiatrist or mental health therapist let's say at least 25% of the time. The Oregon data, the Washington data consistently shows that the referral rate to mental health therapists is around 4%. Wow. Well, doctor, what about the person, you know, who's fully cognitive and says, I want to die? Well, why don't we just let them die? Give them what they want. Again, that is the argument of the other side is that in so fiercely protecting individual rights and autonomy that indeed if the safeguards are made robust where a six-month or less prognosis can be as accurate as can be, that if there is truly an appropriate assessment of their mental health and the patient is making that decision truly without any coercion, fraud, influence, economic gain, etc., free from depression, then that should be their right. And what I'm saying is that that is where it starts, that kind of idealistic situation. But that's what I'm here for, is that to recognize that actually behind all of this, the larger concentric circle is really all about individual rights, no matter what, and the fierce protection of that and what it will do to society, and finally the value of life itself, because quickly it'll creep into the fact that from why would we consider this to why shouldn't we consider this, why would someone be allowed to pass away this way to shouldn't someone pass away this way? So what do you say to patients who tell you that, you know, I'm in misery, I just want to die, or sons and daughters who have parents or grandparents sitting there say, ah, I want to die. I want to die. What are some words that you can say to that person? Well, let me give you an example first is that I actually, about two weeks after last year's bill was started on the house side, I got a call from a desperate hospice nurse saying, we're not even being allowed to go into this person's home because she is just adamant that she wants the medications to end her life and she otherwise is trying to starve herself to death. So she allowed me to come in and talk to her and 
a lot of this is patient listening and presence. That's what everybody can do with or without training. As I sat there patiently listening and being present there, her husband was there. And as we spoke, at one point, her husband turned to her and said, you know, I really, really will miss you if you were to die soon. She turned to him and grasped his hand and said, that's the first time I've heard you say that. I feel so valued. Do you know that she never again brought up wanting to die? She passed away peacefully about five to six weeks later. And therefore, it's a combination as Christians. That is our obligation and duty to come alongside with the sufferer and to really encourage them and direct them towards their identity in Christ. And I mean that because, humanly speaking, dying is so hard that without an identity in Christ, perhaps you should be for this bill. But because we have the Holy Spirit, because we know that there is redemption and suffering because of the hope that it gives us, that is why I'm here spreading this message. Here's another one I often hear that uh, I'd like to bring my life to an end because I don't want to be a burden to my family. How do you answer that one? Well, I'll give you another example. There was two Asian women, not related, came in separate circumstances to their psychologists and said, you know, kodomo no tameni, meaning that for the sake of my children, I would consider passing away in any way I can because I feel very uncomfortable because they're trying, they seem to be trying to say that I should quickly go into hospice because I have that feeling that they're trying to say I'll be a financial burden on them. And as much as I'm a little upset with them for saying that, for the sake of the children, I feel like maybe I should honor that. Now, at that time, that was several years ago, the psychologist was relating this example to me. Of course, this bill was not in place. This option was not in place. But what the two women said independent of each other was that, doctor, is there a way that can, I can prevent having ever to go into the hospital, never having to take any medications, because indeed, perhaps I'll be a burden on others and it's better if I just die. So you can see where culture can really go with something like that. Mm-hmm. And indeed, if you were the grandchild standing to get some economic gain from that, and you have a grandmother who's saying something like that, you might protest at first, but you can see sort of a conflict of interest that you do stand to gain something, and that's the concern. Yeah, you know, and and really, what's it say about our culture when our parents and grandparents say, well, you know, I'm going to be an inconvenience to you folks, so it's better that I'm gone. The devaluing of the elderly like that, well, that's a real reflection on the values of our culture. I think it should be a great concern to all Christians and And everyone. It's not just the elderly. It's not just the unborn. The Netherlands experience started off 25 to 30 years ago with physician-assisted suicide. It then went reasonably quickly to euthanasia. It went from those that were terminal to those that were simply with advanced illness. It went to those with mental illness who were deemed to be having intolerable suffering from their disease. 
it went from voluntary to involuntary. It went to consideration of those with dementia. It went to those from ages 15 to 18 who felt that life was just too hard at that age and therefore with a parental conference, but not necessarily with parental consent, they would be allowed to do that from age 12 to 15. Imagine that, an adolescent who's struggling through adolescence, if felt to be competent, could request lethal medications. They would need the parental consent to do that. And that slippery slope is very real, and that's where it could all lead to. And ultimately, again, the big question, well, that's really great, Dr. Craig, but why should this be any of my responsibility to put effort in fighting off this bill? Ultimately, I think the reason for standing in the gap is whether the Lord's coming soon, whether it's 20 years, 40 years, 80 years, whatever. If we go the way of Netherlands and you actually have this involuntary euthanasia for situations where it might come down to if you are not following the norms of that, moral norms of that country, or if you resist that, then you would be considered mentally unfit and Christians could be euthanized. And if we're not standing in the gap now, we have not done our responsibility. Yes, and you know, in the Netherlands and even in Canada, they found cases where patients were coerced into dying. Well, that's the hot thing, and that's that's in you know when we go to the hearings right now, the legislature is saying they're hearing it all from the other side. There's been zero cases of fraud and abuse, but clearly there are. The problem is with the bill, the fact that all the data stays with the Department of Health and is totally protected against any quality review or law enforcement review, and so very likely abuse is happening. The other side keeps trying to trumpet that. There's zero cases of abuse, but if the foxes are guarding the hen houses and a case of abuse actually occurs, it's actually showing that system of protection for the one who took the medication, that fortress of protection has had a leak and therefore a chance for abuse. But right now, that's how ironclad the privacy language is within the current bill. Yes, it's a big uphill battle for you and those standing against uh, euthanasia here. But also you brought up another point that there is a connection with teen suicide and cultures that, you know, allow euthanasia. Younger people are looking saying, well, these older people can take their life whenever they want to. Well, then so can I. And so there is a connection there with teen suicide and euthanasia. Suicide in general in all age groups up until about age 80, I believe, is continuing to rise. Almost all chronic illnesses are actually going down, but suicides and up until maybe last year, opiate overdoses were the only ones that were going up, in particular in teen suicides. And so every single state is having a rise in suicides, but that rate of rise in every single state that has legalized physician-assisted suicide has had a much greater rise than those states that have not. Yes. Now, here's the argument from the other side. They're saying, well, look, doctor, you know, we've got safeguards in place. You have to be fully mentally competent and request to die twice, I think a couple months apart. You need to be diagnosed 
terminally ill with six months left to live, and heirs to your inheritance cannot prescribe or request euthanasia for the patient. So we've got safeguards in place, so there won't be any abuse. We have enough protection measures there in place, so why not go for this bill? There are other radio shows that will address the actual contents of this bill, but there is clearly language around there that as much as this year it's being trumpeted as the most robust and safeguards in the entire nation, there are at least two areas that expose the gigantic flaws within them. And one is, of course, that all the data is kept to the Department of Health, is not subject to quality review for law enforcement review. And number two, that as much as there are mandates to try and language there to say that um, there will be a Class A felony for abuse, coercion, et cetera, there actually is no means of enforcement of that. And that's actually plainly seen. This is more legal language that it's really that the penalties are based upon if one was acting only in good faith or not. So that if the intent was so-called out of good faith and a mistake was made somewhere along the line, that's the lowest bar for prosecution and enforcement. Yes, you know, and those regulations are in place in places like the Netherlands. In the 90s, the Remelink Committee did a survey of Dutch physicians and found that over a thousand patients were actually put to death without their consent. You know, of these, 140 were fully mentally competent, 110 were only slightly impaired, and 25% of Dutch doctors admit to terminating a life without a patient's consent. So like you said, doctor, you know, these records are kept confidential. And so it's really hard to monitor whether, you know, there'll be abuses to this safeguard. There's obviously, they weren't completely followed here in the Netherlands and in Canada and in other countries where supposedly these safeguards are in place. Yeah. And, and you know, that's for now. That That is already to see that abuses can happen the instant the um, law is passed, the operations of it take place. But as I said, it is clear that it will go to euthanasia eventually. It is clear that it will be brought in. And ultimately, you could even postulate that that is the gateway towards the end times when that when you have that option that can be abused, you know, years, decades from now, then it'll be actually a convenient way to under the guise of euthanasia, execute those that are not following the norms of that country. That's, you know, essentially that's what happened in Germany. It's, 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 it started off really with Hitler's thing against the mentally ill, and we had what we had. And basically in that situation, the Lutheran Church did not step up. And we got what we got then, and now this could be even worse. Yeah, you know, that's a great example. Some people might might be saying, well, you guys are being extreme here. Well, no, that's how really it all begins. And Germany is where the Reformation began. And so they had a strong Christian history. That's how the, the fall of civilization begins, by the adopting of false values and false ideas. You know, one of my concerns, doctors, that things like euthanasia is going to change the entire medical practice. You know, the Hippocratic Oath says, I'll use 
treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury or wrongdoing. I'll neither give a deadly drug to anybody who asks for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. Similarly, I will not give a woman an abortive remedy. In purity and holiness, I will guard my life and my art. You know, it's an oath you all take when you graduate, and something like this seems to me it's going to change the medical practice. Especially in the United States, because the United States has the highest healthcare costs per capita without actually even having outcomes that are better than some of these countries that have less healthcare costs. And therefore, the cultural shift, certainly within America, where there's these rising healthcare cost pressures, and you're talking about the vulnerable, such as the elderly. Clearly, there will be that slippage towards doctors starting to consider having a life ended. There are already health insurance companies that actually have denied chemotherapy drugs and yet put in that same letter making it very obvious and plain that end-of-life drugs are available. And I already know that as a palliative care physician that some of the referrals then coming to me because some of these doctors saw some of these patients as a revolving door coming into the hospital. And indeed, there, there, are many, there are many that are in denial, but for the doctors themselves to then stereotype and basically the referral directions to me as a palliative care physician was get them to hospice no matter what. And it shows that kind of this slow devaluation of life within the economic health care cost pressures is going to happen. Yeah, you know, I would think that most doctors would actually, if they really understood the process and all of that, uh, would actually not want to prescribe or be involved in physician-assisted kind of suicide. And I think that's what we're seeing in the Netherlands and in Canada. A lot of doctors who once did it are now pulling out of it. Do you see that situation here that most doctors probably if they understood the process, would not want to be a part of it? Well, the ones that are pulling out are the ones that actually have started to see the slippery slope and start to get more and more uncomfortable because they see the types of requests broadening and they're wondering if they're actually doing the right thing. And on the other hand, as far as if there's a passage of the bill here in Hawaii and uh, upon enactment, the majority of doctors here... In fact, I know right now of only one that uh, locally that would actually prescribe the medication. The vast majority, even though they perhaps may be in favor of this bill, certainly would not be the ones that would be prescribing the medications. So you may have doctors imported from outside under a package deal with Compassion and Choices to have everything set up, including the two consultations and, and agreements and witnesses, etc., so it can be wrapped up and tidy and done really quickly. And the whole idea is that there's an agenda. Well, let's pray this bill doesn't pass. We definitely stand behind and uh, are in support of our representatives who stand against this particular bill. But should this bill pass and we find ourselves, you know, joining Colorado and California and those other states, what can we do? It's not merely educating 
others despite the passage of the bill if it were to happen here or educating others in other states which i'm which i'm having to do because i'm part of a national coalition but really as believers is what i said earlier is that there are things to be concerned about this bill and stand in the gap and fight for but there also is that obligation for us that may not be suffering at the present time, but for someone who's in their last chapter of, of their lives or has an advanced illness, to really come alongside them as brothers and sisters in Christ and be present with them, suffer with them, and encourage them and help them to really grow in their identity in Christ. Because in that redemptive suffering, the scripture promises us is that not only do we have the hope of heaven on the other side, but that very suffering we rejoice in here because it does give us hope for a weight of glory beyond all comparison. It actually by its very self gives meaning, dignity, and purpose as we come alongside the sufferer and the sufferer can really see the hope that he or she can have. Now in the churches, you know, what can pastors and Christian leaders do? We talk a lot about how to live, but we also need to address the issue of how to face death. And that's what I deal with all the time is that for me, Romans eight twenty eight is such a real verse for me that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose because in the dying process this verse gets to be starkly real and relevant and therefore how to live now in order to live victoriously even in that time of one's last chapter of one's life needs to be in my mind, something that's addressed in the pulpit to live victoriously in an abundant life, not only to one who has the capabilities of attending church or even, even by social media, etc., but that we are all equipped, that we are equipped with the Holy Spirit so that when even this time of the valley of the shadow of death comes, we indeed can be confident we fear no evil for indeed the love of the Lord shines in us and we have that peace that passes all understanding and have hope even on this side of eternity. Fantastic, yes. And that's the message of hope that really only the gospel of Jesus Christ can bring. You've been listening to this great interview with Dr. Craig Nakatsuka. He's retired internal medicine physician and practicing medicine for over 30 years, especially working in this area of long-term care and palliative care, standing against euthanasia bills or physician-assisted suicide bills here in Hawaii and throughout the United States. So, Craig, thanks for being on the show. And if people want more information on where they can get a hold of you or more information on this topic of euthanasia, where can they go? As far as the bill itself, Hawaii Family Forum, the website, has done an excellent job in the specifics of where the bill is at. There actually is a hearing coming up in the Senate 
consumer protection and health and mechanics of how to do that is in the Hawaii Family Forum and actually should be immediately looked at right now. If someone just as more, a lot of times with, a, with this subject, there's as much suffering that goes on in terms of what do I do with my loved one with dementia? What happens? What kind of support we have? I'm a little afraid to put my phone number out there, but the way to reach me is I currently work for Hospice Hawaii. May not work there for too much longer because I do want to enjoy retirement, but you can reach me there at 924 9255 and ask for me, Dr. Craig Nakatsuka. Fantastic. Dr. Craig Nakatsuka, thanks for being on here on Evidence and Answers and standing in the gap, being a voice for the most vulnerable in our society. Well, our time has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps at a conference, give him a call at 808-483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers relies on generous support from you, our listeners. To keep this broadcast on the air, you have the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You may do so right there online on the homepage. We have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with your family, friends, and your church. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. <laughs>